0: Kneel at the cross, a hymn we often sing, and it reminds us of the power of Calvary, the magnitude of the cross. The magnitude of the cross is immeasurable. It is impossible to fully calculate the impact that the cross of Jesus Christ has on this world. But what does it mean to you? We need to individually kneel at the cross, as it were, in the sense that we come to the cross and understand fully its meaning, its magnitude, and how it can truly transform our lives. This morning we're going to talk about the meaning of the cross. Part of the verse that is included here, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, reminds us that when Paul, as he rehearsed his work among the Corinthians, he said, when I came to you, I did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, but he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him Crucified. What did he mean when he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Was he saying that all I'm going to talk about while I am among you here is just the fact that Jesus was crucified, that he died on the cross? No, he, he meant that everything associated with that sacrifice, everything that is meant by that sacrifice, everything that is involved in that sacrifice will be the center, the core of everything that I am going to declare to you as I preach to you the gospel of Christ. And so for a few minutes this morning, I want us to simply take the word itself, the word cross, and and use it acrostically to remind ourselves and hopefully to embed in our thinking more fully and completely the depth of meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let the sea represent compassion. I believe that's where we would begin as we look at the word cross or think about what's involved in the word cross because what is behind the cross is the most complete and perfect compassion that has ever been displayed to man. John chapter 3 verse 16 is a key text, isn't it? Love and compassion are closely associated, obviously. The compassion, the love of God, motivated God to send His only begotten Son and motivated the Son to willingly come to this earth and to give up equality with God and to suffer as He did. And the golden text of the Bible there, as we so often call it, reminds us that God so loved the world. God was so filled with compassion for humankind God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Compassion. How is it defined? Well, if you look at Webster, He'll define it as sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. And that really beautifully describes what God did in the sending of His Son and what His Son did in coming to this earth. There was a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress. There was a sympathetic consciousness of, of man's distress on the part of God. The deepest possible distress that has ever existed or ever shall exist. The distress that is brought about by sin. The distress of departure. The distress of departure from God. And yes, there was a desire on God's part to alleviate that distress. And so it is not only an awareness, it is not only an emotional identification with the distress of those who were lost in sin, and that was everyone, but there was a desire on God's part to alleviate that distress, and there was only one way to do it, the cross. Only one way, through the sacrifice of His only begotten Son. And the compassion that motivated the coming of Christ manifested itself in the character of Christ as he lived among men. Look with, me, look with me at a few verses that depict that compassion. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. The text says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom." and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, and the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." The compassion of Christ on this occasion called for for compassion to manifest itself in the carrying of the gospel to the world. And the compassion of Christ, if we are emulating that compassion, still prompts us and should prompt us and must prompt us to carry that gospel to the world. Based upon what? A recognition of our duty to do so? Well, certainly it is our duty. A recognition that if we fail, our souls are in jeopardy. Yes, indeed, we should recognize that if we fail in that commission, our souls are in jeopardy. But it is compassion that should motivate us to carry out the Great Commission. Because it was compassion that motivated Christ to come and to be the shepherd for those who were scattered as sheep having no shepherd. And then... In Luke chapter 9, verses 41 through 44, one of the most poignant passages on compassion that one could ever find is seen as Jesus looked upon the city of Jerusalem. Jesus came, looked upon the city of Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19 rather, and he wept over it the text says, verse 41 of Luke 19, beginning. As he drew near, he saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you did not know the time of your visitation, that is you did not recognize me to be your shepherd. You did not recognize me to be your deliverer. You did not recognize me to be the answer to the greatest problem you have ever or ever shall encounter and that is sin and the separation that it brings between you and God. And as we have pointed out when we've looked at this passage in other lessons, it was not a vengeful spirit with which Jesus approached the city. It was not a you're going to get what's coming to you kind of attitude. No, no, anything but. It was tears that flowed. It was tears. It was an attitude that produced tears down his cheeks as he wept over the rejection that he so desperately had hoped they would avoid and that they would accept him. Yes, he said in no uncertain terms what was going to happen to them, and he spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming and their ultimate eternal destruction if they did not repent. But he did so with the deepest compassion and the greatest sorrow that one could manifest and yes that compassion that he demonstrated in his life culminated in his death that's where we see the culmination the climax of the compassion that brought Jesus to the earth and the compassion that drove him to the cross oh yes he prayed three times in the garden if it be possible let this cup pass from me let this cross pass from me in effect nevertheless he added not as I will but as thou wilt. John three fourteen, he knew it was coming, and he said on that occasion, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man shall be lifted up. This he said, signifying by what death he would die on Calvary. And in John twelve thirty two, he said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself, reminding us of the magnetizing power the cross should have upon the hearts of right-thinking people. But why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? The R in our word cross tells us why. Redemption. It was necessary in order for him to redeem mankind. What does it mean to redeem something? Well, if one goes to a pawn shop, having, having pawned an item and desires to redeem it at some point in time and does successfully come back to do so, he has redeemed it by paying a price. He's bought it back. And that's exactly what redemption is. It means to buy back. And Peter, in First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, talks about that redemption. As he reminds Christians who had undergone that redemption process... He says to them, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but, here's what you were redeemed with, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He goes on, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Then he says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then this reminder from Peter, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. That gospel, that good news was the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Those facts along with those commands that could bring about redemption Bring about a reconciliation, a redemption that was so necessary because man had separated himself from God. Remember what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2? The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin separates forever. Without redemption. And the only redemption possible. Is through the cross. And it is through the cross. That God's justice was satisfied. Because his justice demanded. A perfect sacrifice. The only one available was the Christ. But in satisfying his justice. Through his death. Christ also allowed the God of heaven. To extend his mercy to save those who would come to him and be redeemed. In him, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1-7, we have redemption. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. What a beautiful summary statement that is about the grace of God that made possible our redemption, our forgiveness, but it is only through his blood. And the only place where the blood is reached is in baptism for the remission of sins, preceded by a belief that leads one to repent, confess Christ, and be baptized. You see, Christ's blood was the ransom price, bringing redemption and reconciliation. And that brings us to our next letter in our word cross, oneness. Oh, how important it is to understand the oneness achieved by the cross. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writing to these Gentile Christians who had obeyed the gospel of Christ. At verse 11, beginning, he asked them to remember something. Literally, he wants them to remember where they had been. He said, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. That's what the Jews call you, in other words. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Then very important words follow, but now, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, here it is again, by the blood of Christ. And then the process in verses 14 through 16 is reviewed. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Both whom? Jew and Gentile. Both the uncircumcision and the the circumcision, as they were called at times. Jew and Gentile. Who's left out of that picture? No one. You're either a Jew or you are a Gentile. He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. What is that? The law of Moses. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That's the process by which peace is achieved through the cross. Now look at verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, all men, reconcile them both to God, listen to it, in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity. Do you know how many people there are in this world today who will kneel at the cross, as it were, and forget altogether about the church and see no connection whatsoever between the cross and the church and no importance of the church in God's plan for saving man while they will exalt the cross? But think about what Paul, by inspiration, just conveyed to us that He might reconcile them both, all men, to God, where? In one body. What is that body? It is the church. No one can deny it. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, He put all things under His feet, gave Him to be head over all things, to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God in one body, verse 16. Then you go to Ephesians 4, 4, There is one body and one spirit just as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. Those seven ones include the one body which is clearly identified as the church. And then Ephesians 5 and verse 23 reminds us for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians one twenty-two and 23. The church is his body, that same passage says to us. And all men are reconciled to God in that one body. You cannot come to the cross. You cannot kneel at the cross and ignore the church. Because those who come to the cross properly don't come there simply to pray a prayer. They come there to obey a plan which says, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, be buried with him in baptism, and reach that blood, and rise added to the one body, the church about which we read in the New Testament. And in that one body, the church, all men are to be reconciled and to be united. The world today, for the most part, has no concept whatsoever of the oneness demanded and achieved by the cross of Jesus Christ. Tragic. Tragic but true. No concept whatsoever. And unity and diversity is the order of the day. And pluralism pervades our society. And choose the church of your choice or choose the church of no choice is the mantra that dominates the thinking of man today. Nothing nothing could be farther from the truth expressed in the passages we've just seen about the sweet and beautiful and perfect unity, the oneness that Jesus shed His blood to bring about. You remember the Lord's Prayer as it's truly the Lord's Prayer in John 17? At verse 20 when He turned His attention to believers for all time, He said, Neither do I pray for these alone, that is the apostles, but for all them also who shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Religious division drives people away from the cross today, really, not draws them to it. Because unbelievers look at the so-called Christendom, in which we find ourselves today and they say if you people can't agree on anything how do you expect me to think how do you expect me to believe? The oneness of the cross is a oneness that tragically is ignored and is not achieved by the religious division that characterizes us today and yet we must contend for it. Compassionately but without compromise. And what about the first S in the word cross? Well, it has to suggest salvation, doesn't it? Oh yes, we're saved from past sins, we're redeemed, we're reconciled, but ultimate salvation is not ours when we've been redeemed. Ultimate salvation will only be ours as we continue to come to the cross, as it were, and obey the teaching of the one who died there. He who rejects me, Jesus said, and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And so, 1 Corinthians one, eighteen through 21 is a passage that reminds us of how foolish the preaching of the cross is to many people today, but not to those who are being what? saved that is those who will achieve salvation through it for the message of the cross first corinthians 1 18 beginning is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent And then he asked, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness, as man sees it, of the message preached to save those who believe. Salvation is in the foolishness, as most men see it, of the preaching of the cross and everything associated with it. Salvation is there, and there is no salvation anywhere else. And while you might see, as I have seen on more than one occasion, the bumper sticker on the back of some vehicle that says, God is just too big for one religion, with all the accompanying icons from Islam to Judaism being included to emphasize the message, no matter how many times that message and those symbols may be displayed, it will always be, as long as time stands, the cross And the foolishness of the cross, as tragically many see it, that will be the message of salvation and the only means of salvation for all mankind. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, which is equivalent to saying I'm not ashamed of the cross. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it, singularly, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first And also to the Greek. But you know the final S in our word cross has to demand separation. The cross absolutely demands separation. Because when you've come to the cross and you've obeyed its teachings, you've left the world behind. And unless you have, you have not truly come to the cross. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm dead, he said. I'm alive but dead. How is that possible? I'm alive and living in the world, but I'm dead to the world and to my former life. And as we have said before, it is not a question of diminishing the world when you come to Christ. You've got to be dead to it. Not sick of it, but separated from it. That is the key. Total commitment. Complete denial of self. And that's where the only real joy and peace is found in Christianity, is in giving one's all. Galatians 6.14, but God forbid, he says, that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is what? Made less important to me. No. By whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Could not be made any clearer, could it? Indeed, we're to crucify the world doesn't mean we can't live in it and enjoy so much of it that God has created for us to enjoy. As Jared pointed out in his beautiful prayer this morning, this time of year is a creation of God for us to enjoy and which should prompt us to look to him and express appreciation for creation, but most importantly for revelation and for the cross, and for the willingness of the Christ to go there based upon his compassion to bring about redemption and the true unity or oneness in the one body of Christ, the salvation that will be ours through that message as we continue to adhere to it as long as we are separated as we should from the things of the world and the ways of the world that would lead us from the cross. Where are you this morning? Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world. Does it have a wondrous attraction to you, as that grand old hymn depicts? Does it draw you? Does it magnetize you? And then does it drive you out of love and compassion for the one who died there for you to serve? and to determine to serve until the Lord comes again, or until you draw your last breath. It should, and it will, if indeed you understand its meaning. But if you have not obeyed the gospel, you have not understood its meaning. And if you're living a life that is not totally dedicated to the one who died there, you have not understood its meaning. In either case, you need to make a change. One who's never come to the cross doesn't come to literally kneel and pray a prayer as much of the world tells us we must do to be saved no we must come to the cross as the one who died there has told us to do believe that I am he or die in your sins john 8:24 repent or perish luke 13:3 confess me and i'll confess you matthew 10:32 and he who believes and is baptized will be saved mark 16:16 16, 16, because in that burial in baptism the blood is applied the only substance that can cleanse. And if you've done those things and have risen to walk in newness of life and been added to that one body and understood and enjoyed that oneness for a period of time, but you've fallen from the way, left the light, left the path, come home to the cross in repentance and confession of sin that's been committed publicly. And let us pray with you and for you to the God who assures you he will forgive if you truly repent. As we stand to sing, will you come?